CP Podcast 84. So last week we completed our clinical anatomy of upper limb nerves webinar. It was a great success and lots of people asking for more information on assessment and treatment of nerve injuries of the upper limb. So in this episode, Marie and I are going to dive into exactly that. So if you're ready, I really hope you enjoy this one. Let's dive in. Hi Marie, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm all good, thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to talk about nerve injuries of the hand. Mm -hmm. Now, this comes off the back of the very recent webinar we did, Clinical Anatomy of Upper Limb Nerves. And so today, rather than talk hugely about the anatomy, we thought we'd dive a little bit more into diagnosis, assessment and management, what we actually do in clinic rather than looking at the actual anatomy. So I'm going to start this podcast by doing a very brief anatomy review. So please do watch that full webinar or at the very least look at the handbook if you want a quick refresher on the anatomy around the hand. Now when it comes to motor supply, a very basic rule of thumb to consider is that we can generally think of the majority of the muscles on the posterior aspect of the hand, not all of them, but the vast majority, being controlled by the radial nerve and its key branch, the posterior interosseous nerve. So we're thinking here about the wrist extensors, the finger extensors, anything with extensor in it is pretty much governed by the radial nerve and its main lieutenant, the posterior interosseous nerve. Then if you look at the anterior surface of the hand, again, not for absolutely everything, but by and large, a lot of the muscles controlling the thumb, the second and the third digit are controlled by the median nerve and its main lieutenant, which is the anterior interosseous nerve. And generally speaking, the fourth and fifth digits are controlled by the ulnar nerve, generally speaking. Now, those are both in terms of flexion. As we said, everything on the posterior side is extension. So that tends to be the radial and posterior interosseous nerve. Everything on the front, first three, median and anterior interosseous nerve, fourth and fifth, ulnar nerve in terms of flexion, because naturally the muscles on the front of the hand are going to be involved in flexion if the ones on the back are involved in extension. Once again, that's a very brief summary and a brief rule of thumb that you can perhaps consider. So Marie, first of all, let's talk about diagnosis. So we have a patient who's walked in and they say, yes, my hand feels a bit weak. It feels a bit numb. What are some of the key things that we're considering when we're trying to diagnose a nerve palsy? So predominantly you're thinking about nervy related symptoms. So your altered sensation, your weakness, um, pain so the pain descriptors for nerve pain so shooting electric shocks that type of description and then it's unusual for patients to report this but loss of sympathetic function so sweating changes hair growth that type of thing excellent and so those are i suppose a starting point how do nerve injuries commonly occur so your most common is entrapment neuropathies so things like carpal tunnel cubital tunnel um but the other really common way people get nerve injuries is, is through sustaining some kind of trauma so usually associated with some kind of fracture okay and the extent that that fracture 
disrupts the nerve supply because the nerves get injured in that fracture. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that in your webinar, you went through all the anatomy and you can see how closely intertwined nerves are around various bony landmarks. So for example, the radial nerve sits snugly close to the humerus and spirals round it. If you have a humeral shaft fracture, it, there's a very high likelihood that that radial nerve may get injured with that. So particularly in the upper limb, your main culprits for nerve injuries are entrapment neuropathies or as a result of trauma, usually fractures, but obviously you can have brachial plexus injuries, but that's slightly different to what we're talking about today. Fair enough. Okay. So we're thinking about diagnosis, therefore, what are some quick tips that we can talk about for how a physiotherapist or a clinician can think about the different nerves and what traits may be applicable to the different nerves. So for example, I'll start off with the radial nerve. As we said, the radial nerve and its chief lieutenant, the posterior interosseous nerve, govern the vast majority of the muscles on the posterior hand, particularly the extensors, the wrist extensors and the finger extensors. So a common sign for a radial nerve palsy is a wrist drop. This is where your patient presents with quite a limp looking hand where you ask them to extend their wrist and fingers and they just can't. It stays in a flexed position as if the hand is hanging over the side of the arm of a chair whereby it's hanging flat in flexion and they can't lift it up. So what might be some of the potential signs for a median nerve or an anterior interosseous nerve injury? Um, changes to sensation in that distribution. So your thumb, index, middle finger, half your ring finger on the palmer side and fingertips on the dorsal side. So changes in sensation. Um, loss of strength. So obviously with motor weakness, you're talking about quite a profound nerve injury. So particularly with your entrapment neuropathies, so cubital tunnel, carpal tunnel, patients may not get that motor weakness until there's been prolonged compression. So it might not be an acute sign in those kind of patient groups. Whereas if you've got a more heavy trauma, if you like, where the nerve's been injured a lot more, you might get the motor weakness. So don't hang your hat on looking for motor weakness as a sign of nerve injury. There's other symptoms to think of too. But in in motor weakness for median nerve, you're looking at loss of muscle bulk in the thena eminence around the base of the thumb and weakness into thumb abduction. You can get something called a simium hand where your your hand kind of curls in a little bit. And I'm sure you went through in the webinar, hand of benediction. So when there's a real profound um, nerve injury to the median nerve, you lose the ability to flex your fingers on that's on the lateral two fingers and thumb. So when you go to make a fist, those fingers don't bend. From an AIN perspective, people find it really hard to do the OK sign because they don't have that flexion for flexus pollicis longus. Um, so that's another kind of quick have a look. If you um, have ever worked in ED, when they do a quick neurovascular check on people that come in with sustained trauma, they do rock, paper, scissors OK as a, a real hard and rough way of looking at motor function in the hand to see how well the nerves are working. Absolutely. We'll talk about rock, paper, scissors, okay, in a second to summarize this section. But otherwise, I will put a link in the description for this podcast for our YouTube video on the nerve injuries of the hand, which go through some of those signs that Marie talked about, like the hand of benediction, the okay sign, a wrist drop, which we've talked about, and a couple of others. So just moving on to the ulnar nerve, as you said, as we said, sorry, uh, this nerve governs a lot of the flexion for the fourth and fifth digits. 
and naturally it's going to be pertinently involved in adduction and abduction of the fingers because it supplies the dorsal and palmar interossei muscles and the dorsal and palmar interossei muscles are the ones that control finger adduction and abduction you can remember the small phrase pad dab which stands for palmar adduction and then dab dorsal abduction which helps you remember the palmar interossei do adduction and the dorsal interossei do abduction so Marie, uh, what might be some of the signs that we might see for ulnar nerve problems or ulnar nerve palsies? Altered sensation in the little finger and the ring finger, so pins and needles numbness, or some loss of power. So you get guttering when you start to get wasting. So again, with quite profound nerve injuries, that is when you start to lose the muscle bulk. So you get guttering between the fingers and you can also get something called the ulnar claw where your fingers start to bend into a flexed position like they're trying to make a fist because of the unbalanced contractions of the the muscles that are working versus the muscles that aren't working. Wonderful. Once again, if any of those terms you may not be familiar with that Marie just mentioned, such as an ulnar claw or the guttering, please do watch that Clinical Anatomy of the Upper Limb Nerves webinar, or we do mention a little bit of that in the YouTube video that I said I'll put in the description. So following that, Marie, what is rock, paper, scissors okay? It is rock, paper, scissors with the OK sign on the end of it. And it's a hard and fast assessment technique used in ED to just double check the function of the peripheral nerves of the hand. So asking your patient to do paper. So finger extension and a degree of wrist extension, you're checking radial nerve. Um, scissors, you're checking ulnar nerve because you're asking them to bend the medial two fingers. And also because of the adduction of the uh, two fingers as if they're doing scissors. Rock, you're testing median nerve and OK is AIN. Wonderful. Great. Okay. So having moved on from that, the next things we're going to talk about is what we will do in physiotherapy, how we assess and how we treat. And when we say assess, we're not talking about diagnosis because we've just covered that. We're talking a little bit more about an objective assessment looking at impairments. So Marie, how might you analyze these patients in terms of their objective assessment, thinking away from diagnosis. I'm just going to go back a little bit to diagnosis just briefly, if that's all right, Carlid. So I think, and it feeds into the assessment part here, I think it depends on how the patient is coming to you. So if you're working somewhere where this patient's been seen in fracture clinic, they've had a humeral shaft fracture, they know they've got a radial nerve injury and they're sending them around to physio in the knowledge they've got a radial nerve injury. That's very different to how I would approach someone who's self-referred themselves to me, who's presented with a profound wrist drop. So we've got the same issue. The radial nerve injury from the humeral shaft fracture has got a wrist drop referred to physio versus the self-referral who's got a profound wrist drop. Your approach is going to be very different because the patient that's seen orthopaedics is being monitored by a medical professional and potentially they're getting advice from a peripheral nerve injury unit or you have one on site that they have been seen is a very different assessment and management to someone who's got a wrist drop and we don't know why. Excellent. Similar theories can be 
pushed to the median and ulnar nerve as well. Obviously, it's most common in kind of primary care for those patients presenting with median or ulnar nerve injury kind of presentation to becoming from an entrapment neuropathy like a carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel. But if they've got really profound wasting and motor loss, that patient needs to be referred on urgently to an appropriately trained medical practitioner. So that should be an orthopedic consultant or a peripheral nerve injury specialist. So that is your bare starting point before you even delve into how you're assessing them functionally and treating them. Nice. So what we're effectively saying is that we want to make sure that the patient is seen by the right person. Absolutely. If someone's coming to you with an owner claw, having never seen anybody about this before, that needs to be seen by somebody else who can make a decision on whether something surgical is needed, whether a specialist opinion from a peripheral nerve injury unit is needed. I would be, it would be quite negligent to try and treat that patient without having made the appropriate referral. There's nothing wrong with doing them both as in treating them and referring them. But if you treat them for six months and then refer them, you might have lost that window for them to have had a surgery that might have helped them. So from a duty of care perspective, you need to make sure they've been seen by the appropriate professional. Excellent. And I suppose that's because, like you said, these individuals might be a candidate for some kind of decompression surgery in order to release that nerve and give it a chance. So you mentioned a couple of things earlier. You mentioned carpal tunnel, you mentioned cubital tunnel. So carpal tunnel, the main nerve compressed in that condition is the median nerve at the wrist. Cubital tunnel, the nerve affected there is the ulnar nerve at the medial elbow, and they could have a carpal tunnel decompression or a cubital tunnel decompression. Well, there's other reasons why nerves can be compressed unrelated to trauma, say things like tumours. So there's other reasons. So if you've got someone presenting to you with really profound nerve changes, wasting motor loss, that needs to be investigated. And we aren't the right people to be doing that investigation nine times out of 10. Great. So that's, I suppose, another key point is weakness and actually you and I looked into this recently as to why weakness is such a factor for nerve injuries and why we worry about this when it comes up. So to highlight the point, if your patient is presenting with profound weakness or profound wasting, we should really get them referred on very quickly to see a consultant of some variety, as Marie said. Now, the reason for this, we found, is that sensory nerves do have some ability and some self-resilience to heal themselves if they are injured. However, motor neurons do not have the same self-resilience. And we can we can see from studies that when a motor neuron is sufficiently compressed or doesn't get the innovation it needs for a period of around 18 to 24 months, the motor neurons can actually die off. And therefore, it's super important for us to refer on because if we don't, it could be that that patient loses motor function altogether because of that time delay, which is what you were saying earlier, that we can't treat these patients for six months, sitting sit on them for six months, and then refer on because it might be too late. 
So once again, as Marie said, we're allowed to treat them, but we shouldn't be treating them without referring them on to the appropriate practitioner for a really thorough assessment and a confident management plan being identified. So Absolutely. Thank you. That's really useful. Cool. So if we now go back to assessment, so you're assessing someone in the knowledge that they've got a nerve injury and that's being appropriately dealt with by the right specialist. So for me, I think I look at kind of, I do some baseline stuff. So I will look at sensation because I want to know, is it 0% that they can feel? Is it 10%? Um, Is it super in keeping with the distribution of the nerve that we know is injured? Because I find that interesting because there sometimes is, is some differences person to person. I'll look at how strong they are. So have they got flicker activity? Can they move their hand against gravity, gravity assisted, or have we got no activity at all? All of those kind of markers of sensation percentage of what they can feel and what they can manage motor function wise, as well as giving you an idea about what you're going to do for treatment. It also helps you from a monitoring improvement perspective, because we know nerves recover really, really slowly. So it you know, average nerve injury a year to 18 months, sometimes beyond that, sometimes never fully recovering. So you're in for a long haul. So I'm certainly not expecting that between session one and session two in a two week period, the things have dramatically changed. However, you can monitor their progress. So if when you first saw them, they only had they had no activity so you were only doing passive range with them because that's all that they could tolerate whereas now they're able to do stuff gravity assisted you know that's progress that's something really positive that you can that you can show them so that's why I would look at those from a from an assessment perspective I'll also do some skin integrity checks especially if they've got if it's someone that's completely numb so making sure that they haven't got any cuts bruises injuries on the area of the limb that applies to any nerve injury um, because if they can't feel it they're at a greater risk of potentially getting an infection and obviously we don't want that turning into anything nasty like osteomyelitis or something really serious in that kind of vein so I'll all do, always do a good look at that too. Great fantastic you, you mentioned obviously Against gravity, flicker, one of the key things that comes to mind there is the Oxford scale. Yeah. So using the Oxford scale for your motor grading, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So no activity, flicker of activity, gravity assisted um, against gravity and then against force is kind of what I have in my head. Of And obviously, sometimes, most often than not, with quite profound nerve injuries, you're talking about no activity at all, particularly if you've got someone with a wrist drop, you know, that, that's going to be really difficult for them to have any kind of meaningful finger and wrist extension. Sure. Super. And we might also look at the state of the hand in terms of contractures as well. And I I know you mentioned about sensation a second ago, and perhaps sometimes we see that if patients have a, a contraction of their hand where their fingers are really in flexion, sometimes if that if the fingers are digging into their own palm because of the flexion that they can't open up, sometimes they can get cuts within the palm of the hand. And so we need to think about positioning, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. So hand position, hygiene, that kind of thing as well. All of those will then feed into what you do in terms of treatment. So real key part of treatment is patient education. So educating them on a nerve injury, on the healing process. Often that hasn't been done. Um, 
or if it has been, it's just echoing what they've already said. So it helps with reinforcement. So they know that next time they see you, it might not have changed much at all in terms of what they're able to do. And that's okay. That's what we're expecting. We're not expecting a miracle turnaround. Protecting the limb, educating them on the fact that they need to be checking it regularly to make sure it's not been injured. There's no cuts, bruises, anything like that. Um, positioning like you mentioned so that might be things like bespoke splints depending on what the injury is to help maintain length within tendons and prevent contractures Um, or it might be something like a Futura splint for wrist drop patients or you can have more bespoke things and some really cool extension um, splints if you're issuing that the protecting the limb becomes even more important because if you're getting them to wear a splint on a daily basis and they're numb, they might not be able to feel it digging in. So they need to check that really regularly. And then you're going to be thinking about the other aspects of the nerve injury. So the sensation and the motor power. So if they've got no activity, can we get them doing passive range of movement so that it maintains ROM at different joints? Um, getting them to real, really do imagination and, and imagery of trying to get their fingers to move. So you're kind of keeping that brain body connection there from a sensation perspective touching the skin with different sensation materials so soft rough um just to again stimulate things giving it a good rub um so all of those kind of things fall into the treatment there excellent that's really really great and it's amazing how as you said you can uh, we've worked in hand therapy units before haven't we and we've seen some incredible splints that allow patients to try and get movement going which is really incredible if you do have an interest in this area i really encourage you to try and shadow specialist hand therapists to gain a bit more experience and understanding if you want to move into a role like that yourself so that's really great and ultimately like you said marie we also need to be constantly on the lookout for progression of wasting and things like that so that we can refer on what might a consultant do for investigations looking at nerves to see the extent of the injury? So typically you're looking at nerve conduction studies and EMGs. Um, The timing of these can be quite interesting. So um, if you do them too acutely, the breakdown process as part of the healing process of the nerves might not have fully happened yet so sometimes if you do them too early they're not very good in terms of giving you a prognostic idea they'll tell you such and such nerve isn't working but to get an idea on prognosis often you need to delay them a little bit so sometimes they'll be done around the three month mark because then that Wellerian degeneration will have happened and you'll get a bit of an idea about whether it is starting to try and regenerate or whether there's nothing happening um so they will consider doing nerve conduction studies emg studies at various time points to to see confirm a diagnosis but also to look from prognosis perspective what you mentioned there about monitoring is really important because although we know nerve injuries are really slow to heal we still should be flagging up if they're not making any progress because that might be a sign that they need to go and see a specialist i've certainly had patients where the consultant said all oh, nerve injuries will take ages to to heal blah, 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 blah. and the nerve conduction studies 
were not, weren't necessarily in keeping with how the patient was presenting and they just weren't making the progress that I would have anticipated. So I ended up referring this patient to a specialist um, nerve injury centre who underwent a neurolysis to try and improve their recovery. So there are instances where even though they've had specialist input that they need that super specialist input um, and monitoring how they're getting on. And if you're not seeing any progress, it is definitely worth feeding back and saying look we're not going anywhere and that might be the nature of the injury it might be that they need input from somewhere else and it might be that that changes the management plan from the consultant's perspective it might be that they're thinking all right well let's try some therapy and see what happens but then if they get that feedback from someone like yourself that there is really no progress that might be the stimulus to suggest right maybe we should operate here yeah absolutely it might be that they they kind of discharge them to physio care and the knowledge that if they're not making any progress that you'll get back in touch with them and if you get back in touch with them at the I don't know, six month mark and they still haven't made any inroads, that's still enough window of opportunity to then get them off to a nerve specialist to talk about for for them to have an assessment to see whether anything more um, invasive would be useful. Thank you so much, Marie. That's a really interesting conversation and some really important points to pick up for people if they do find that they have a patient presenting to them with a hand nerve injury. So thank you so much for your time and see you soon. Thank you. So guys, I think if there's one piece of advice to summarize everything that we've heard today, it comes from what Marie was saying about making sure that this patient is seen by a specialist so that as a physiotherapist, you can do your rehab knowing that the patient also is under that specialist care who can intercept if they feel that the patient needs further intervention. Thank you for listening. See you soon.